0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cashback on everyday debit card purchases with no fees, period. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. You're listening to Code Switch from NPR. I'm Lori Lizarraga. You know the bio section on your social media profiles? Mine is always some version of, you know... Latina, daughter of immigrants, middle child, code switch co-host, journalist, napper. (laughs) I mean, it's updated some through the years, but to be honest, it reads today a lot like it did a decade ago. Because some of our personal qualities induct us into certain identity groups for life, right? And group identity is a hugely central part of how we understand each other. In a lot of ways, It shapes what we come to know and to expect from people in certain groups, people outside certain groups, and from ourselves. Group identity often hangs on some central experience, a formative or historical event, that becomes this story we hear about again and again, one that we all know and go back to. It's those big moments that often come to define a group's identity for better, or for worse. Like slavery, for African Americans. Or the civil rights movement. For a lot of Mexican Americans, Tejanos specifically, it's when the land that belonged to Mexico became Texas, when the border crossed us. For Japanese Americans, one defining moment was being forced into incarceration camps in the U.S. during World War II. But understanding the culture and character of any community understanding ourselves. It relies on the stories in the margins, the less well-known, but no less formative experiences of us, of our families. Corey Suzuki's story is about one such experience. Corey is a San Francisco-based reporter who wanted to look more closely at one of his own group identities to better understand what it means to be Japanese-American. To do that, Corey found a less well-known but no less formative experience, shared by tens of thousands, that defined another side of what it means to be Japanese American, and he found it in a personal story—the story of his obachima, his grandmother. Here is Corey.
1: Can you just tell me what you see?
2: It's a big ship. Someone that's on the ship waving. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh,
1: little girl. (laughs) This is my Obachma, my grandma. I'm asking her to describe a drawing that's been in my family for years, one that I've never really been able to get out of my head. It shows a little girl standing on the railing of a ship. In my memory of the drawing, she stares out over the water. Her straight black hair dances in the wind.
2: Very lonesome (laughs) picture, isn't it?
1: And this is, this is you. hmm This is me. <laughs> this drawing is of Obachima as a little girl, coming to America from Japan in 1949. For four years, Japan and the United States had been at war. I'd heard Obachima tell these stories. She and her parents were living in Tokyo, right in the firing line. Some nights they would watch, as Allied bombers passed overhead, and the city glowed orange. In this drawing, the war is over, and Obachma, just 16 years old, is on her way to California, alone. For the longest time, I thought this was the moment, the one that so many descendants of immigrants hear about, the moment our families made the journey to this country. What I saw in that drawing was a lonely moment, but also a moment of hope of leaving war-torn Japan and forging a new life in the United States. It wasn't until high school that I asked Obachima about it. I wanted to know what it was like to be born and raised in Japan. But her response shocked me. I was born in San Francisco,
2: California, August 1932.
1: That was the day I learned that Obachima was not born in Japan. She was born in California, an American citizen, in the heart of the West Coast. When I learned this, I didn't know what to think. It was like my whole sense of where I came from had been turned inside out. I always thought Obachima was Japanese, but really, she was Japanese-American. That drawing of that little girl on the ship, it wasn't of someone making the journey to a new country. It was a picture of someone making their way home. I had so many questions. Why did Obachima and her parents end up leaving the United States? What was it like to grow up on the other side of the war? What was it like to come back? And then Obachima told me something else. There were others, she said. This wasn't just her story. There were thousands of people, tens of thousands, Japanese-Americans who were in Japan when the Imperial Japanese government attacked Pearl Harbor and who were stranded on the wrong side of the ocean. For generations, one story has defined what it means to be Japanese-American. It's the story of the incarceration during World War II, of when the government of the United States uprooted more than 100,000 people of Japanese ancestry from their homes along the West Coast and forced them into federal incarceration camps, of a group of people who spent their entire lives trying to prove that they didn't deserve this injustice, trying to prove how American they really were. This is the flip side of that story. It's the story of my Obachima's journey from San Francisco to Tokyo and back again. It's the story of a group of Japanese Americans who, instead of being forced to bury their Japanese heritage, were cut off from their American identity. And it's the story of me, trying to figure out where I really come from, and what it actually means to be Japanese American. It was a bright day when I drove over to interview Obachima for this story. Obachma still lives in Richmond, just across the bay from San Francisco, with my parents and the house where I grew up. Some parts of the house have changed since then. Others, like Obachma's room with its stacks of books and greeting cards and picture frames, are the same. Okay. Hi. Oh, your room looks so clean. <laughs> I didn't want
2: you to come in here.
1: <laughs> it really was not that bad. We sat down on her bed, surrounded by her books and photographs, and I asked her to start at the beginning. I went to a
2: kindergarten in San Francisco, which is called Kimongakuen, Golden Gate Kindergarten. I didn't study English too much. They were more or less teaching Japanese.
1: It was the three of them, Obachima, her mother, and her father. They were living in San Francisco in the 1930s, when a lot of Japanese people were working on farms or cleaning houses.
2: My father was ambitious, and what they did was uh, making Japanese produce. Because at that time, there were quite a few Japanese immigrants in San Francisco. And bringing Japanese produce to San Francisco was a
1: Good business. Obachama loved San Francisco. There was the fog and the rolling hills. There were the holidays, like Christmas, where the city would sparkle with light. But there was nothing like the crisp spring day that five-year-old Obachama got to walk across the Golden Gate Bridge for the first time, the very day it opened. Can you tell me about um, walking across the the bridge for the first time? (laughs)
2: 1937... Weather was nice. You know how a bridge is always cold. so many people. And San Francisco people were always well-dressed. Men is in the suits and the hat, and ladies with the
1: hat and gloves. There were videos of the day. It was May, 1937. The sky was clear. Fleets of planes droned overhead. Thousands of people had gathered to walk across the bridge for the first time.
2: When I came to the center of the bridge, looking up, it's very, very unbelievable
1: how people could build that. San Francisco was a beautiful place to live, but it wasn't the easiest. Local labor groups organized protests against immigration from Japan. The city's school board had threatened to segregate students from Japanese families and bar them from white primary schools. The California legislature had passed a law meant to stop the Issei, the first generation of Japanese immigrants, from owning land.
2: Issei people who came from Japan first, they had such a anti-Japanese discrimination and they couldn't uh, have children to have a higher education, and they couldn't even buy the house property. So say people encouraged children to go to Japan.
1: Historian Brian Nia has spent years studying Japanese American history. And he told me that for all kinds of reasons, thousands of Nisei, Myobachima's generation are turning to Japan at this time. A lot of the kind of Nisei
3: with college degrees and so forth go, go there because that's the only place they could get a, get a job uh, commensurate with their qualifications. Uh, and then for many younger Nisei, their parents, especially if they have means, send them to Japan for ed- to, to be educated, feeling that if they're bilingual, bicultural, they just have a better chance going forward.
1: A lot of people, Brian says, also went back for family
3: reasons. One of my wife's uh, cousins, kind of a distant cousin, but she, she's born in Tacoma, then at age 13, gets sent to Japan to take care of a, of a grand, grandmother or
1: grandfather who's not well. For a while, Obachima's parents didn't feel like they had to leave California. The produce business was going well, and it seemed like things were stable. Then they got the news Obachima's grandmother, back in central Japan, was sick. Her health was failing fast. So in 1937, the same year they walked across the Golden Gate Bridge, Obachima's parents told her they needed to talk. They had to leave San Francisco, they were going back to Japan.
2: We were just visiting half a year or one year, Mm -hmm.
1: planning to.
0: Coming up, more on the story of Japanese Americans caught in Japan in the line of American fire during World War II.
3: It's kind of the biggest unexplored episode in the history of Japanese Americans.
0: Stay with us.
4: This message comes from Wondery with the new podcast, Black History for Real, weaving Black History's most overlooked figures back into their rightful place in culture and the world at large. Listen to Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it?
0: With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Lori. Lori and Corey. I had to. Code switch. In every community, there are generations of stories that define what it means to be American and Chinese, American and Indian, African American, Mexican American. One painful story that's been a defining one for Japanese Americans is that of the United States government uprooting more than 100,000 people of Japanese ancestry from their homes along the West Coast and forcing them into federal incarceration camps during World War II. But there is also another story, one shared by tens of thousands of Japanese Americans in the early 1900s of American citizens, children, of Japanese descent whose families left the U.S. to return to Japan when suddenly war broke out, stranding them on the other side of the ocean, forced to try and survive the violence in their homeland inflicted by the nation of their birth. While looking at what it means to be Japanese-American, reporter Corey Suzuki uncovered the details and depth of that story and its influence on Japanese-American identity through someone very close to him who lived it. His grandma. Here again is Corey.
1: That plan, to stay for half a year, maybe one year, stretched into two, then three. And then, in the winter, they heard that something had happened.
2: At that time, we didn't have TV, so radio was our
1: only source. Japan had attacked a U.S. Navy base called Pearl Harbor. Obachima remembers being confused. She was still just nine years old, and she didn't understand what the news meant. But Obachma's mother was worried. They should have left Japan earlier, she said to Obachma. There was no way they could get back to San Francisco now.
2: She liked the America some. So she was so regretful she didn't come back before, you know. And uh, she said, "I'm going to put the American flag on the top of the roof." <laughs> so they don't drop the <laughs> bomb. Which was a very
1: ridiculous (laughs) thing. They didn't actually end up putting a flag on the roof. For a few months, things were quiet. It was winter in Tokyo. Obachima and her parents were living in an industrial part of the city. She was going to school, and her father was working in a factory, something to do with electrical cords, she says. They stayed with other workers in factory housing. Then, in the spring, the United States hit back they launched their own surprise attack, a retaliatory air raid on Tokyo.
0: The planes sweep in without being discovered. They separate into groups to attack the several objectives carefully selected by means of accurate intelligence.
1: They targeted factories and industrial areas. To ensure that only targets of military value will be hit. Doolittle... Obachma remembers putting everything they could carry on a small cart and running.
2: We didn't have truck or anything, so... We put the immediate necessity on the wagon and we start running. And I still remember fire just getting closer and closer (laughs) as we moved
1: in. I should say here, Obachima doesn't go around casually telling these stories about living through the war. But when she does, she doesn't shy away from them. She tells them with a smile sometimes a laugh. I don't know why that's how she tells these stories, about terrible things that happened at the hands of American soldiers. Maybe it's just because this is what things were like when she was growing up in Japan. These are her middle school stories, her childhood memories. Anyway, the company housing, Obachima says it was all burned. They couldn't go back. Instead, she and her parents moved in with another family, the Takemuras, who lived across the city. It was a lonely time for Obachima. The Japanese government was starting to evacuate children and older people to the countryside to try and get them out of the path of future bombings. Obatima's parents asked her if she wanted to go.
2: I wanted to go because I'm the only child and uh, to live with everybody is kind of so nice. And I volunteered and my parents agreed and uh, I went.
1: But she wasn't there for long. Soon, her parents came after her.
2: (laughs) And they say, if we have to die from bombing and whatever, war, they wanted to stay together, you know, family. And so I had to come back to
1: Tokyo. As the war continued, life in Japan got worse and worse. Food and other supplies were hard to find.
2: We were lucky, only three of us in the family, but people didn't have enough to eat. And clothes, you cannot buy anything, you know. Of course, no candy. It was
1: getting worse. Even during all of this, there were also moments where things felt normal. Obachima kept going to class. Every day, she would commute from Setagaya, where the Takamuras lived, to her school in the center of Tokyo. She would take a train to Shibuya Station, where she would catch a streetcar to the school. There were exams and homework.
2: We had an English subject, but I hate it. <laughs> I was very bad student.
1: But the war also brought complex feelings. At home, Obachima remembers her mother speaking out against the Japanese government. At school, she says, they were taught loyalty to Japan.
2: We were all brainwashed, and uh, we were told England and U.S. they were the enemy to us. Uh-huh. So, mm.
1: so you felt Japanese. Mm,
2: mm, mm. During
1: the war, man. Obachima still remembered San Francisco, though, too. She thought often about Christmas and Halloween and going to her kindergarten. That was the one thing she knew for sure. She wanted to go back to California. In November of 1944, American planes returned to the skies above Tokyo. US forces had captured the Mariana Islands, an archipelago in the Pacific, and were using them as a base to bomb Japanese cities. Every night, Obachima says she and her parents would draw black curtains over the windows and turn off the lights to hide their home. That spring, Obachima learned there had been a major air raid in the center of Tokyo, right where her school was. They said it had been burned. But I
2: I liked the high school so much, and I wanted to see myself, you know.
1: She got on the train to Shibuya Station. When she arrived, the streetcars she used to take were gone. So she started walking across the city, past glowing embers and bodies.
2: Sure enough, school was all burned.
1: Hibachima didn't laugh when she told that story. Across Japan, tens of thousands of other stranded Japanese Americans were also living through the war. Researchers say their experiences varied. Some lived in the countryside, isolated from the violence of the war. Some were conscripted into the Japanese military. Some were even sent over by the U.S. government during the middle of the war.
3: My mom was also in this category.
1: Historian Brian Nia, again.
3: Her story was that her father was a prominent newspaper editor in Honolulu. So he was arrested and interned on the night of December 7. They were among the handful of Japanese who are exchanged, basically, for American prisoners. So she starts out in Hawaii, but she ends up going to Japan in the middle of the war. But, you know, her situation is similar at that point. Conditions are getting really bad, and here are more mouths to feed, and there are Americans on top of that, you know, who in some ways are being blamed for this whole predicament. You know, a really sad part of the story is that, of course, Hiroshima is one of the main prefectures that Japanese immigrated from to the U.S. And, of course, many of them ended up back in Hiroshima.
1: We know what happened next. Nine days after American forces bombed Hiroshima, Obachima and her parents heard there was going to be an announcement. People
2: told us to listen to the radio at 12 noon.
1: They tuned in. At first, it was just static. Then, a
2: voice. It was the first time we heard the emperor's voice on the radio. He was very sorry we were surrounded and told us it's the end of the war. No more
1: suffering. In September of 1945, when Obachimo was just 13 years old, Japan surrendered. American planes started to land, carrying soldiers and military equipment, and they also carried something else, hundreds of American movies.
2: The very first American movie I saw was Madame Curie. It's a nice movie theater, it used to be, but all the chairs were burned, so we sat on the concrete where used to be chairs were <laughs> placed.
1: If we can prove the existence of this new element, It may enable us to look into the secret of life itself deeper than ever before in the history of the world. Across the ocean, the government's incarceration of Japanese Americans in the U.S. was also ending. One by one, the camps closed down. People were handed what would be about $350 today and were put on trains bound for the West Coast. When I think about this moment, I think of a tide. Thousands of people, like Obachima swept across the ocean for years. But now, the water was turning. The current was calling them back. It was April 1949 when Obachima was finally able to get passage on a ship to California. Her parents, who had never been American citizens, had to stay in Japan. But a distant relative in San Jose said they could take Obachima in.
2: Everybody wanted to come to America, you know, because of the influence of those movies and American lives. But for me, I still remember child food memory from San Francisco, so I wanted to come.
1: So, one morning, Obachima went down to the docks. It was a bright spring day. She said goodbye to her friends and stepped out over the water, onto the deck of an American ship. She was 16 years old, and finally heading back to the United States.
2: Once I got on the ship, of course I start feeling, uh, I felt sorry for my parents, you know.
1: Obachima was sad to be leaving her parents behind, but... A big part of her was also thrilled. She was so excited to be going home. The ship was called the USS General Gordon. During the war, it had taken American soldiers to Normandy and brought German prisoners back to the States. Now it was ferrying passengers across the Pacific.
2: It was a very plain army ship, and I got stuck getting seasick in the uh, bottom of the ship. And, but it didn't bother too much when you
1: were only 16. It was a long trip, two weeks across the ocean. So Obachma started getting to know the other passengers. She was surprised to find out that a lot of them were like her, Japanese-Americans who had been stranded in Japan. I was treated very well,
2: because I was the youngest, and they would look after me.
1: Halfway through their trip, the ship docked in the Hawaiian Islands. Obachima spent a day wandering around Honolulu with the other former strandees. We had one
2: day we could see city, and I still remember how pineapple was delicious, and we had a good time. And finally, we had to get on the
1: ship again. After two weeks, the moment came that Obatrima had been waiting for for what felt like her entire childhood. In the distance, they could see land. Obatrima stood on the deck of the ship and watched as her California appeared over the horizon. It was the scene from that drawing the one I had been thinking about for what felt like my entire childhood, of that little girl on the deck of a ship staring out over the water, that image of hope. But all Obachima felt was sadness.
2: When I saw Golden Gate Bridge on the deck, I stopped crying because uh, I didn't want to get off the ship. Everybody was so nice. <laughs> I had to say goodbye to all the friends.
1: After everything, after years of running from bombs and burning buildings, of waking up hungry and tired, of trying to survive long enough to make it back to the United States, all she wanted to do was to stay with the other Japanese Americans on that ship. She knew that once they got off, everyone was going to go their separate ways. And she was right. Still, every Japanese American who had been on that ship, every Japanese American who had been stranded in Japan, had something to share now. There was a new name for them. Can you read it one more time? Kibei nisei.
2: Ki means uh, return. Bei means uh, uh, abbreviation of uh, Beikoku, which is America. And ni is uh, number two. Sei is a generation, second generation.
1: Return to America. To return to America. The Kibe Nisei, the generation who left and came back. I guess, um, like, who? What do you? You know? What do you? What do you consider yourself? Like, are you Japanese? Are you American? Are you Japanese-American? Um, Japanese American?
2: Japanese America. Japanese American. Not complete American, not complete Japanese (laughs) kibei nise.
3: I think the general story of Japanese Americans in Japan during World War II is kind of the biggest unexplored episode in the history of Japanese-Americans. Historian Brian Nia. It just does not fit the, the kind of standard grand narrative of going to concentration camps, the 442nd, resettlement. I mean, the the, the grand story, the farewell to our story, you know, the kibei, they're not part of that. This is really a story that we need to know a little bit more about and that kind of complicate our understanding of the whole Japanese-American story.
2: (laughs) Where are we? Golden Gate Bridge.
1: Last August, my sister and I took Obachima to walk across the Golden Gate Bridge. We do it every year for her birthday. And every year, it's cold. Like that day she walked across for the first time, back in
2: 1937. How are you feeling? Okay, fine. Are you excited? Yes! (laughs)
1: What does it look like?
2: Beautiful. 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 I wonder if I can do it next year.
1: As we walked out over the water, the clouds split and the sun came through. I've been thinking about something Obachma said earlier, about how she cried when they finally got back to the U.S. What I was expecting to hear next, what I was waiting to hear next, was that those were tears of joy, that she was so happy to be back. But that wasn't it. She was crying because she didn't want to say goodbye to the other Kibei Nisei on board with her. She didn't know when she was going to be able to see them again. I think I get what she meant now. I used to think she looked so lonely in that drawing, standing there on the deck of the ship. But I realize now that she wasn't alone. Those other people on the ship, they understood. She didn't need to explain anything to them about her life, about the things that had happened, about what it was like. They already knew. We drove back across the bridge and went home.
0: That was Corey Suzuki. He's a reporter and visual journalist currently based in the San Francisco Bay Area and a recent graduate of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. And that is our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you're not already, you can subscribe to our podcast on the NPR app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at NPR Codeswitch or, you know, the email is more your thing. Ours is Codeswitch at NPR.org. A quick shout out to our Codeswitch Plus listeners. Thank you for being a subscriber. Subscribing to Code Switch Plus means getting to listen to all of our episodes without any sponsor breaks. And it really helps support our show. So if you love our work, please consider signing up at plus.npr.org/CodeSwitch. This episode was reported by Corey Suzuki. It was originally edited by Shireen Marisol Meraji, head of the audio concentration at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Additional editing came from Ethan tovin Lindsay, Lisa Armstrong, and Queen Akim. Special thanks to Scott Kurashige, Michael Jin, and Naoko Waki. Thanks also to Anna Sussman, Erica Aguilar, Lauren Delaney miller Olivia Zhao, Corey Antonio-Rose, Nish Harjani, Sabrina Pascua, Ruth Dussault, Zhao Wu, Catherine Steyer-Martinez, Andrew Lopez, and the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was produced for Code Switch by Kumari Devarajan and edited by Leah Donella. Our engineer was Brian Jarbo. And last but never least, a big shout-out to the rest of the tremendous Code Switch massive. Dahlia Mortada, Courtney Stein, Christina Kala, Jess Kung, L.A. Johnson, Marilyn Williams, Steve Drummond, and my co-hosts, Jean Denby and B.A. Parker. I'm Lori Lissarraga. Call your grandma.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at Rosettastone.com slash NPR.
0: There's a new way to support this show and public media. Please consider signing up for the NPR Plus podcast bundle. NPR
2: Plus listeners get to unlock sponsor-free shows and bonus episodes. You can find out more at plus.npr.org. And thanks.